So we were thinking about that one uh, good saying. Was it Bunyan? Uh, who said that? Run, John, run. It's either Bunyan or somebody else who is cool. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, bids me fly and gives me wings. I like that. It's good. Good one. Now, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Romans 8, I, I like to start with descriptions people have said about Romans, Romans 8. So, it's, so if you compare Romans to a range of mountains, like all kinds of good spots, like Romans 8 is the highest peak in the mountain range. Some have said if you compare the book of Romans like to the Garden of Eden, this is like Romans 8 is the tree of life you know, in the middle of the garden. Uh, if you compared Romans to like a, a cathedral, Christian cathedral, this is like the inner sanctuary of it. Okay? And then and I came up with a famous saying of my own too. Uh, I say Romans 8 is a really good chapter. That's, that's what I, that's what I, so I, I have that hanging on my wall in my office. But, now think about Romans 8. Uh, when, when, do, when do you turn to Romans 8? Or when do you point someone to Romans 8? Like, what's going on in your life or what's going on in their lives? Yeah. When they're um, not sure of salvation, yeah. when they're struggling with their sin. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're struggling with their sin, struggling with their assurance of salvation. And you, and you point them to Romans 8. You say, they're going through suffering, or I'm going through suffering, and I, and I turn to Romans 8. Good. Okay. Anything else? Those are two of the big things, assurance and, uh, and suffering. Maybe somebody's doubting the love of God for them. We go to Romans 8. Anything else? Somebody's wondering what role the Spirit has in their life. And where, what would be a better place to go than this chapter? It's probably the main chapter in the New Testament on the, the working of the Spirit. In our lives, there's lots of good, good, place, good reasons we go. So this is obviously a great chapter. Uh, I want to work through some questions. So starting with the first verse, what's the connection to the previous chapter? Because you got that therefore. So what's going on with that? Therefore, because it, it does not flow super well from the preceding line. So there's, there's a lot of discussion about what happens at the end of chapter 7. Uh, like, because you see that very last line, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's kind of anticlimactic, you know what I mean? It's like, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I serve sin and serve God. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, okay. So, so some people think like Paul kind of like was so excited. He kind of like jumped the gun and like made this big exclamation before kind of summarizing what he's been saying about the eye. But uh, in any event, it does not read super well from the last line of chapter 7 into chapter 8. That's my point. You know, With my flesh I serve the law of sin, therefore there's no condemnation. Okay, so, so then people are starting to like look for other things, you know, that the therefore is pointing back to. Like maybe the exclamation, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, therefore there's no condemnation. Uh, I actually think that this text flows really well out of 
something back at the end of chapter five. The last time he used condemnation language, do you know what it was? In the story of Adam and Christ. So like in Adam, there is condemnation, but in Christ, there's no condemnation. And so I wonder if this doesn't almost look back over chapter six and seven. So as I think of the, the structure of this, you've got five, one through 11 is mirrored by the end of chapter eight. You've got 5, 12 to 21, which is about Adam and Christ. And I think that's about Christ's triumph over Adam. And that's pretty much paralleled by the beginning of chapter 8, about the Spirit's triumph over the flesh, who we are in the old man. And then chapter 6 and 7 are about freedom from sin and freedom from the law. So I, I wonder if this doesn't kind of reach back to the last use of condemnation. Say so there, there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ. You could read straight from chapter 5 into chapter 8 and find it to be very compelling. But in any event, he's, he's appealing back to what we have in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ. Now, if you read chapter 8, verse 1, in the King, I don't know if you ever see like a King James, New King James, and I'm not sure actually, I wonder about the translations you have. Is, does chapter 8, verse 1, so look at translations you have in like Amharic and, and Arabic. Uh, does it end with Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. Or are there more words in verse 1? Like a whole, like another half of a verse. There's more, okay. And this is in which language? Oh, this is New King James. Yeah, okay. So in English, yeah, New King James is going to have more because it's going to say there's no condemnation for those in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh but walk according to the Spirit, okay? Do any of your translations from other languages say that, or do they all stop it for those who are in Christ Jesus? Yeah, and it, says, it just says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and it stops right there. Okay, yep. Okay, okay. But I guess my, my, my question is, does verse 1 say, for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, in your translation? Okay. All modern English translations stop with, for those who are in Christ Jesus, other than New King James and, and Old King James. So, because they say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the Spirit, or who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay. I want to use this just as a... Uh, a way to talk about this kind of thing? Okay, like, what's the deal with that? Like, how can that translation have an extra half of a verse there? Like, what do you think? It seems like, so if, if your translation has that, it is relying on the Textus Receptus, or, or at least the majority text. Um, I'm not sure for this one. But what do you do when you see something like that? Like where, because in your footnote, it probably says this. Okay, like it probably says something like some manuscripts add who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit, no matter what, okay? So it's there. Sometimes it's in the main text. Now, this is an example where, so every time you have a textual problem like that, like where there's, all, where there's some old manuscripts that have this and some old manuscripts that have this, you're always trying to figure out like, 
how did that happen? You know, like, because obviously, if some manuscripts say, who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, and some manuscripts don't say that, either somebody added that phrase or somebody omitted that phrase. You know, because it said one thing when, when Paul wrote it, and people were copying it over the years, and somebody along the way either added the phrase that wasn't there or they omitted the phrase that was there, right? I mean, that's, there's not really any other options uh, to this. So how, how does it happen? Well, a lot of times it's explainable by uh, the same phrase will sometimes show up later in the passage. And it's possible that like a sleepy scribe skipped a line as they were writing. Because on this one in particular, you'll notice that exact same phrase is in verse 4. So like in the New King James, okay, if you don't, if you can't follow what I'm saying, you see at the end of uh, verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And that is in all manuscripts. So it's, it's possible, and probably most likely, that the scribe in one, who was writing a long time ago probably skipped a line as he was copying. You know, it'd be hard work, by the way, to copy the manuscripts. And, and pick that phrase up from verse 4 and put it in verse 1. And then, and then from that point on, it's in the textual tradition. Um, this is the kind of thing that goes on in textual criticism, by the way. You're looking at the same stuff, and you're trying to ex- just explain, like, well, how did, that, how did that probably happen? And in this text, the best readings are that it doesn't have that in verse 1. And that's why most translations <laughs> don't include it. But there were some old manuscripts that had it. And they probably picked that phrase up from verse 4. So it doesn't really change the meaning because it says the same. It says the same thing in verse four anyway. So it doesn't actually change the meaning. All right. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I, I love that, right? What does the law mean in that verse? <laughs> what sets you free from sin and death? The law, right? So the law sets you free from what? From the law. What does that mean? This, I think, again is a word play. Uh, you could read different people have different views on this, but I think Paul, like he did earlier, is using the word law in that verse where he's setting up like lots of uses of law and contrasting them. That's like, kind of like my tip that he's making a word play. When he's contrasting laws in a short space, using the word a lot, he's probably making a word play. They don't all refer to the law of Moses. And I think he's saying something like, for the for the law or the authority or the power of the spirit in Christ has set us free from the law or the power or the authority of sin and death. <clears throat> For God has done, verse 3, what the law, that's the Mosaic law, could never do. How has God done what the law of Moses could never do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This was God's solution. The law could not deliver you from sin and death, but someone could. Christ could. So God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to set us free from the law or from the power of sin and death. Now, uh, think of that, calling Jesus, saying that Jesus is is in the likeness of sinful flesh. I think Paul's being pretty specific there. 
So just, just imagine that Paul said that Jesus, God sent Jesus in sinful flesh. What would you then conclude? That Jesus was sinful. But what if he just said Paul, or, or God sent Jesus in the likeness of flesh? You might, you might think that he just looked like he was human, which was a heresy as well that was later uh, dis, uh, condemned. So Paul says he was, God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh, which I think is a pretty interesting way to describe that God sent Jesus in the likeness of our flesh. Like Jesus became one of us. He was subject to the effects of sin. He wasn't a sinner but he was subject to the things that our bodies are subject to, the, the fatigue and the sickness and the pains and, he, and even death. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and then it says, and for sin. Now look down at the footnote there. See, verse, see that I have a footnote there. And what does it say? And as a sin offering. Okay. So I'll, I'll show you something here. This will be interesting. Okay. So... That seems like a pretty big difference, doesn't it? To say that God sent his son for sin or to say God sent his son as a sin offering. Like, how can you, like, translate that so differently? All right, so here in Greek is the phrase, okay? It's this phrase right here. Peri hamartios. Have you ever seen those words yet? Peri is, like, concerning or for, and then hamartios is the word sin. So it just looks like for sin or concerning sin. So how would anybody say that that is as a sin offering? Some translations will actually say that. Like the CSB. As a sin offering. You see, they, they put that in the translation. How about the NIV? A sin offering. Okay, so you see that? So why would they get that out of this phrase? Am I making any sense here? Okay. ESV says for sin, it puts it as a footnote, or as a sin offering. The Greek text just says two words, like concerning sin. And these other some of these other translations are like, Paul is talking about the sin offering of the Old Testament. So here's, here's what we'll look at. Okay, so I'm going to look this up uh, for a second. Okay, so I want to have Peri, and I'll allow for one word in between and Hamartia, okay? So I'm looking for that phrase. Okay, look at that. Look at that. You see that? In Leviticus? Okay. So then... Okay, look, in Leviticus and Numbers, that same phrase occurs 78 times. And it is always in reference to the sin offering. Okay, <laughs> so that's why uh, translations do it. So I think, I think this is Paul saying, look, what the law couldn't do, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of our flesh, to be the sin offering for us. The, the, you know, and he's alluding to the Old Testament offering. Uh, and through that, God condemned 
sin in the flesh. In whose flesh? I think this is specifically in Jesus' flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh of his own son. God sent his son Jesus in the likeness of our flesh to be a sin offering for us. And on the cross, God condemned sin in the flesh of his son so that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And here, bringing things around to Paul's view of the law. In Paul's view of the law, if you look to the law for your strength to be what God wants you to be, you will never be able to do it. But if you will look away from the law to the one the law was pointing you to, to Jesus, and walk by the spirit he gives you, you will fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in your life. Like, Paul, this is why Paul, Paul does not overthrow the law of Moses. He actually says, what I teach is the only way to fulfill the heart of the law in your life. You keep looking at law, you keep looking within, you will never be able to do it. But you look to Jesus and you just walk by his spirit and in your life you will be fulfilling what the law was always calling you for, too, but could never give you the power to do. I think this is his, his view. So then a verse, verse 5. So you've got verse 4, which says there are people who walk according to the flesh, people who walk according to the spirit, and it's only those who walk according to the spirit who will fulfill God's righteous requirements. That's the only path. It's only walking according to the spirit. Why? Someone read verses 5 through 11. I think this is answering a question of why is it only those who walk according to the Spirit who will be able to fulfill the law, the heart of the law, which is love? Like why, why only them? Why not the people who walk according to the flesh? Why only the people who walk according to the Spirit? Someone read verses 5 through 11. Yeah. Okay. Why is it that only those who walk according to the Spirit will be able to fulfill God's requirements? Because we need the Spirit. And, and those who walk in the flesh, they, they can't please God. They don't want to please God. Their minds are hostile to God. Like you need total transformation and you need the Spirit of God. And what is the good news in this passage? Like, no, Paul, Paul is not saying like there are Christians who are in the flesh and there are Christians who are in the Spirit. No, that is not his view. What is his view? His encouraging news is you, however, are not in the flesh anymore. You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if, and if the Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to God. I mean, this is... So for Paul, like, Christians are those who have the Spirit, are who, those who walk according to the Spirit, and Christians are the people who actually can do, and will do, and will fulfill what God wants in their lives. They won't do it perfectly, but genuine Christians will see fruit and evidence because they have the spirit within them. There's actually going to be signs of life in the living. <laughs> now, I want to make a comparison between chapter 6, 7, and 8. Okay, so chapter 6, what's it about? Sin. sin. What's uh, the believer's relationship to sin is what? 
dead to sin. Okay, so the good news in chapter 6 is that you have died to sin, right? That is uh, the good news of chapter 6. And then what was the application in chapter 6? You're free, and so don't let sin reign in your life, but rather present yourselves to God. Okay? Uh, and then in chapter 7, it was about the law, and the good news was what? God has set you free in Christ from the law. And then the application was pretty much, so don't look to the law and within for your strength. Now chapter 8, what's the good news? It's about the flesh. You are no longer in the flesh. The flesh does not own you or define you. You are in the spirit. The spirit's in you. And so then you would expect Paul's going to give some application after that. Okay, now look at verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You can see that's very similar, right? It'd be like we are debtors not to sin to live according to sin. We are not under the law that we have to live under the law. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. This is the beginning of his application. We are in debt. What's interesting, perhaps you notice that Paul sort of starts out going one direction and then he kind of changes his course. We are in debt, and then he says, not to the flesh. Who are we in debt to? Who do you think? He's going to get there, but we are in debt to whom? The Spirit, I think, in the text. We are under obligation. We do owe our allegiance to the Spirit, but he wants to focus first. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, what's going to happen to you? You'll die. That's some pretty strong wording, right? We do owe our allegiance to someone, but not to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything. In fact, if you order your life after the flesh, if you chase after the flesh, which is like the old, the old you or the person in the old age. The, 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 Paul's use of flesh could, could be sometimes about like kind of the old you. Or uh, in this passage a lot, it's about like the old age. Like you are, you are not in the old era, in the old age anymore. You don't owe the world, the old age, anything. And if you chase after the values and priorities of the old age, you will die. The flesh ultimately leads to only one destiny to death. So the first application of this text is probably negative. Like, don't run after the flesh. Don't order your life by the old age. Don't chase after the priorities and values of the old age. Don't give your allegiance to the dominion of darkness anymore, that kind of thing. You're not a citizen of that kingdom anymore. Don't chase after it. But then he gets to the positive application, okay? So look at verse 12 again. And this is what I want to focus on for probably most of the rest of today. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you do that, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. This text is about the leading of the Spirit of God. And it is about the responsibility of every Christian to give their undivided allegiance to the Spirit and to give themselves fully to following the Spirit wherever he leads. And as you can see in verse 14, this is what marks out the sons of God. What marks out God's sons? Being led by the Spirit. As many as are the sons of as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. 
And this includes daughters too, yes. Um, although Paul is using the language of sons intentionally in this text, and, and, and we'll see that later when you get to the language of inheritance and heirs. I think he is using sons intentionally. But I wanna, I wanna slow down and I wanna think about the leading of the spirit. What do you think the leading of the spirit is? Are you led by the spirit? Yes. <laughs> because as many as are the sons of God are led by the spirit of God. But what does that mean? What is the leading of the spirit? Yeah. <clears throat> Him enabling us to put to death the deeds of the body. <clears throat> okay, that's good. Good observation. How do people talk about the leading of the spirit? How do you talk about it? <clears throat> You're at church with somebody. Spirit led me to do what? To marry this person, to have pizza tonight. I mean, like people use it in all kinds of like serious ways and like flipping ways. And you're like, what do you mean? You know, like, because when somebody says that, it's kind of like, you know, like, like if they're doing something questionable <laughs> and, and you're like, I'm not sure if you should do that. And they're like, the Spirit's leading me to do that. It's really hard to say anything to that. You're like, uh, well, okay. But like, what do you even mean by that? Like, what do you mean the Spirit's leading you to do? How do you know that? Like, are you, are you talking about like some sign or some like internal like feeling prompting? Like what are, what are we even talking about? Like, so I wanna, I wanna think about this. So it's, I think, uh, and I don't know what it's like here, but in my, in my circles uh, in, in the States, I think Christians often um, talk about the leading of the spirit as kind of like some subjective internal like impulse to do this and not that. Like that's, that maybe is the main way I hear people talking about the leading of the Spirit. Uh, you know, I, I had some feeling or impression that God wanted me to go here and not there. Or that God wanted me to do this thing or not that thing or say this thing or not say that thing. So like maybe we don't know which coffee shop to go to. And I can't remember the names of one out here. There's Zing, right? And then there's another one, you know. And, and there's so many to choose from. It's sort of like we don't, we kind of wait for the spirit to lead us to the right place or to the right coffee. Or perhaps like someone's wanting to think about dating or something, you know, some Christian girl, but he doesn't know whether to ask or whether to wait, you know, whether she'll say yes. And so he just waits for the spirit to lead him to give some impulse one way or another. And by the way, don't, 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 don't go and talk with a girl and say, you know, the spirit has led me to tell you that you need to date me. Okay, this is not, this don't, don't, don't say that, okay? Yeah, <laughs> there you go, there you go, okay? All right, all right. So, so okay, I, I want to start by saying, like, this is how we often talk, or I often hear people talking about the leading of the Spirit, okay? My point is not to, like, be overly critical of this, okay? If you even, and in fact, if you ask me, does the Spirit lead us in, like, just, like, day-to-day decisions, I do think the Spirit guides us in many ways to make very practical decisions. He guides, first and foremost, through the Word. He guides us through prayer. He guides us through His people. But God's Spirit, I think, can also guide us in a variety of other ways, like through our circumstances, through our experiences, through our reason, and even simply just through the desires of our hearts. Okay, so I, I'm not, like, trying to say God doesn't, like, lead us through His Spirit in, like, very specific, practical ways. But I do think we often put far too much emphasis on, like, kind of, like, subjective uh, unverifiable, like just <clears throat> indisputable, I can't argue against this, kind of like internal, private, personal impressions, okay? Over against like 
looking to the word or like maybe actually praying about something <laughs> or like getting counsel from somebody about something, okay? But what I, but what I wanna focus on is what does the Bible mean when it uses this language? Because I think we use this language, but the Bible rarely uses this language. And so I want to know like what is the Bible talking about when it talks like this, okay? And what, you'll, you know, what you're gonna find if you look for it is it's just not very common in the Bible. In, in fact, in Paul's writing, he only talks about the leading of the Spirit in what places? Galatians 5 and Romans 8. That's it. You won't find any more of that language uh, used. And in both of those places, in Galatians 5 and in Romans 8, the picture is the same. It's of us walking in line with the Spirit and of the Spirit actively leading and empowering us to walk in the paths that he's setting down for us. Okay, what's also interesting that the same language is used in the Gospels of Jesus, the Son of God. Maybe that came to your mind. So think, for example, of the Gospel of Luke. At Jesus' baptism, in Luke 3, what happens? God says something from heaven, and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And then what happens? You get this voice, you are my beloved son. And what happens right after that? Beginning of Luke chapter 4. Yeah, yeah. So Luke 4 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. And this is how Jesus lived his entire ministry. He was a man led by the Spirit, which is to say, every path he took was charted by the Spirit. And Jesus, the Son of God, was empowered every step of the way to walk in that path that the Spirit was laying down for him. There's at least one Old Testament text about the leading of the Spirit that I think is important to think about. You can go back and look at it sometime. It's in Isaiah 63. In Isaiah 63, Isaiah is looking back to how God led Israel out of Egypt, to how he led them through the Red Sea, and then how he led them through the wilderness, and eventually how he led them by his power and by his spirit all the way to the promised land. Okay, what's my point? If you want a picture in your mind of the spirit's leading, don't picture standing in front of two coffee shops. Instead, a better picture would be to think of how God delivered his people out of Egypt and how he led them every step of the way, all the way to the promised land, through the sea, through the wilderness, all the way to the promised land. God did not just give them, he, in fact, he didn't give them, he did not give them a map or just point them in the right direction. That was not how he led them. God was with them, charting their course and empowering them to take every step of that journey. Okay, so, so there's, just a, there's just a few of the texts. There's, there really aren't very many texts in the Bible about this. So when I try to like summarize what the Bible says about the leading of the Spirit, that when the Spirit leads in the Bible, the Spirit leads us clearly to or away from specific actions or destinations. This is what you see. Second, when the Spirit leads God's sons in the Bible, the Spirit is leading them constantly on the journey. Not just like pointing, saying, I'll see you on the other side. No, it's like God's Spirit is actively with them 
empowering them, leading them every step of the way. That's the way it was with Israel, who was called God's son. That's the way it was with Jesus, who was called God's son, who truly was God's son. And that is the way it is with us, too, as the sons of God. As many as are the sons of God, these people are the ones who are led by the Spirit of God. And I'd like to say over the years that I don't think we need to be sitting around and waiting for the Spirit to lead us as much as we need to be actively following where the Spirit is already leading. God's Spirit is already on the move. He's already leading. He's always with us, and he's constantly leading us. And then the, the other thing you see in these texts is that Spirit leading, or the leading of the Spirit, is something where the, when the Spirit leads, the Spirit leads with power. God's Spirit does not just point the way and then tell us, go out and do your best. I hope you make it. In all the texts about the leading of the God's Spirit, God's Spirit leads God's sons with God's power. The leading of the Spirit is not about God's Spirit giving us direction. It's about how God's Spirit empowers the sons of God to actually walk in the ways that he's charting. So when you come back to this text, I say, well, what does the Spirit of God lead you to do in this text? Or where is the Spirit of God leading? in this text in Romans 8. What do you think? We already saw one of them. From verse 13, the Spirit is leading you to kill the deeds of the body. God's Spirit leads God's sons to hate sin, to want to root it out and kill it. And God's Spirit is leading all of God's children to do that. Now, this is pretty graphic, you know, like language, like of like, exterminating, putting to death, killing, rooting out, this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, does that sound like your attitude towards sin? Um, you know, that we want to kill sin, put to death the deeds of the body. What does that look like to do that? In real life, like, has God's spirit been leading you this week to kill sin, the deeds of the body that want to surface? Is God's Spirit leading you to put to death those sinful deeds that want to surface in your life? Is this easy or hard? It's hard. And what does it look like to kill sin? So the Spirit like highlights areas in our life. Thankfully, God doesn't show us everything bad about ourselves at once, you know, because we'd be like all like crying off in the corner. But but over time, God's Spirit points out different areas of our lives where we are failing to please the Lord. But then what? So now we see it, but what does it look like to, to kill it? Yeah. And by the way, like these, these things that want to surface in our lives, like they want to live. They are not like laying on the ground saying, oh, please, oh, please kill me. <laughs> Put me out of my misery. These are things that really like want to surface in our lives and we see them, we see they're wrong. And what does it look like to kill, to kill sin? John Owen, by the way, was really good on this kind of stuff. Like, uh, the, the Mortification of Sin uh, is a really good book uh, on, on this. He was very, he thought about this stuff a lot. The, the book's really, really helpful. And he said things like, you better be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. But, but what does it even look like to put to death the deeds of the body? I mean, you've got things in your life that want to surface. Maybe sins you've struggled with in the past. Maybe sins you've struggled with as a believer for a long time. Those things are not just going to go away. <laughs> 
Like, but God's spirit is leading you and empowering you to kill them. But how, like, what does that mean? What would it look like to kill some, are, are there sins, think of this, are there sins in your life that you used to really struggle with, but now you don't as much anymore? There probably are. There are probably some you still struggle with a lot. There's probably some new ones that you're struggling with now that you weren't struggling with before. But over time, some of the things you struggle with, you actually grow and you don't struggle the same way with them. And praise God for that. But like, that doesn't just happen automatically. Like, God's spirit leads us to root these things out of our lives. But how? What does it look like? Okay, so I certainly agree. It's, it's got to be, I mean, this is motivated by the gospel. Like, we want to please the Lord because we love the Lord. We're thankful for what he's done for us. We know there's power in the gospel to change. But like, we see, you see a sin in your life? Like, you should, we need to grow to hate it. I mean, this, we need to grow to hate it like God hates it. Like, we need to acknowledge. I mean, there's, there's simple things here. Like, we, we need to own up to our sin. Like, you'll never root it out if you don't actually acknowledge it. Like, if you don't really own up to it. You don't confess it, repent from it, hate it, maybe bring it out into the light of other brothers. You, you, you know, so you got people that say, I, oh yeah, I wish, I wish I didn't do that anymore. <clears throat> really? How much do you wish you didn't do it anymore? Enough to maybe share with a brother? Get them to come alongside you? and fight with you. You know, like, let's just say, so, so let's say somebody's really um, struggling with, I don't know. What do you think? What sin could somebody be struggling with? There's lots of them. <laughs> it could be anger or pride or whatever. Like, what does it look like to try to follow, like God's spirit does, wants to kill that. <laughs> wants you to put that to death in your life. And he'll, and he'll give you help and power to do this, but you gotta, you gotta think through some of this, and, and a lot of times, our, our like profession of our desire to not want to, to do this anymore is far stronger than our real willingness to take steps to, to root it out. It's easy to say, I, I wish, you know, I wish I didn't do that, but when it comes to like, well, would you be willing to do this? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. That sounds pretty extreme. Like, like take a sin like, like somebody's like um, enslaved to pornography. Okay, and, it's, and, and so I've worked with lots of people about this. Okay, and like, okay. One, do you really acknowledge the sinfulness of that? Like, of what is going on? Like, I mean, it is grotesque. Right? I mean, these are these are people that are going to go to hell for what they're doing. And you're sitting there taking pleasure in this. These are, these are somebody's daughters who are probably weeping about what they're doing. You know, start to think about stuff like that. Think of Jesus. He died for that. You start bringing it to the cross. You start thinking about the reality of our sin. Start to say, does anybody else know about this? Like, are you willing to, to share this and to be open about this with some brothers who could help you? And they say, I, I don't, I'm not willing to do that. Would you be, you know, how does this happen? Say, well, you know, I just, I have my phone and I just, would you be willing? I'm not even saying you should do this. Okay? I'm just like trying to give illustrations. Like, would you be willing 
to get rid of your smartphone and get a dumb phone? <laughs> no. <laughs> really? I mean, they, there's like there's like bringing it out to delight. There's hating it. There's praying about it. There's taking practical steps to try to cut off the places where sin wants to surface. Think, this is what, and you can read all about all kinds of stuff like this from John Owen. He, he, he really spent a lot of time thinking about like knowing the ways, your weaknesses, sin knows you, Satan knows you, knows how to get you to fall, the places, the times. And uh, yeah, so anyway, there's a lot of things you can think about with this. Where else is the spirit leading? So you got, looking back in verse 13, what about verse 15? Spirit's not just leading you towards negatively, like putting to death evil deeds. Where else is the spirit leading? Verse 15, you see what it says? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery leading you to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, where is the spirit of God leading you? The spirit is not leading you to be afraid of God. Now, where is the spirit leading you? Closer and closer to God. God wants you to be close to him. God wants, this, God's spirit is leading you to the point where you can cry out to God, Abba, Father. God's spirit is leading us to closer and closer fellowship with the Father. How close are you to God? Do you want to be closer? God's spirit is pushing you further out, further and closer and closer to God. And then verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And what, God's spirit is, what is God's Spirit leading us to? Like, to fuller and fuller assurance that we're really in the family. God's Spirit is leading all the children of God in these ways. Leading us to hate sin and want to root it out. Leading us to closer and closer fellowship with the Father. Leading us to greater and greater assurance that we really belong in the family. And then you see verse 17, and if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I think this, thinking back even to the Exodus, you know, God's spirit leading, you know where God's spirit is leading? He's ultimately leading us to the promised land. He's leading us to the inheritance. You know. This is Romans 8. 13 to 17, I think. It's about the Spirit's leading, leading us to hate sin and want to kill it, leading us closer and closer to the Father, leading us into greater assurance that we really belong, and ultimately, the Spirit is leading us all the way to our inheritance, all the way to the promised land. Now, the path to the promised land isn't going to be an easy one because it doesn't go around suffering. It goes right through it, and that's what we'll lead into the next, to the next text, which we're going to look at tomorrow. I hope it'll be encouraging, though, to you to really think about <clears throat> you don't have to wait for the Spirit to lead you. God's Spirit is already on the move, leading you to hate sin, leading you to where you can cry out to God, Abba, Father, leading you to that assurance that you really do belong in God's family, and God's Spirit isn't going anywhere. God's Spirit is going to be with you every step of the journey all the way to your destination, all the way to the inheritance. And, and this is good news for us. This is uh, some of Paul's greatest teaching about the gift of the Spirit.